Democrats elect a new party chairman this coming Saturday in Atlanta. It's been a long few months since Election Day. They're out of power at virtually every level, both in Washington and across the states. This is the Big Story Podcast, and we're going to take a few moments to just reflect on what Democrats have in front of them, the challenges, and who they may have some of the inside track becoming chairman. I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Nathan Gonzalez and Simone Pathé, and we're going to talk, let's talk about some of these candidates that we've got going. Simone, you've been doing some reporting on this race. What, could, what are we looking at as we look at this election coming up on Saturday? So four months out after the devastating November elections for Democrats, we still do not have a figurehead for the party here. So this is really what elections this weekend are going to be about. You have four um, front runners at this point. Keith Ellison, of course, is a congressman from Minnesota. You've got Tom Perez, the former Obama labor secretary, um, an Indiana mayor from South Bend, Pete Buttigieg, and um, a South Carolina state Democratic chair, Jamie Harrison. And Nathan, you know, with your study, you know, in, in the insides and outs of American elections for inside elections, your own publication, as well as your work with the roll call, how much does it matter who the DNC chairman is? Well, if we take a step back, as you mentioned, Democrats are in the wilderness and everyone, the party's looking for a way out. Everyone is standing up and saying, I'm the leader. When, But when a party doesn't have the White House... There's no clear leader, and everyone's kind of grasping, and that's where we are here. And I think the DNC fight is just the latest uh, ideological battle that we've seen percolating over the past few years. I think the the 2016 Democratic presidential primary, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, was an example of an of the ideological fight. I think this chairmanship is both ideological and strategic. Um, each of the of the top contenders have a, I think, a slightly different. Uh, plan that they think can revitalize the, the Democratic Party. To your, to your actual question of what does it matter, I, I think it remains to be seen. I, I talked with a, a veteran Democratic strategist recently who said he couldn't remember the last time the DNC was relevant <laughs> in, in a conversation. Because since 2007, 2008, it was really the Obama for America organization which turned into organizing for America. And that was basically what the DNC used to be. And the DNC was kind of left, you know, they weren't on the relevant conference calls. It's like, that's fine. Go ahead. Be be whatever you want to be. Do whatever you want to do. Now, the Democrats need the DNC to be relevant. And uh, but it's going to be a rebuilding process. And, you know, part, you mentioned like that the, the DNC was sort of withered on the vine a little bit during the Obama administration. Debbie Wasserman Schultz was the, the chairwoman of it for you know several years. But there were some tensions there, you know, you know, with with her. I mean, it was almost like people she was just sort of parked there. Um, and we have an interim chairwoman right now, Donna Brazil, who is known probably more as a CNN talking head than than anything else. So really, I mean, I think you're right. We're, we're probably looking at you know, 2005, 2006 election cycles, you know, for when Howard Dean was the chairman, uh, which, you know, getting to, you know, something that we were talking about earlier, Simone, that the last time there was a contested DNC chairmanship, it was Howard Dean, and he devised this 50-state strategy. Uh, before we talk about that, though, what's, you know, you, you mentioned there are four, you know, these four people, there are also five other people running uh, who are lower tier that are not considered, you know, people who have a viable uh, chance at it. One person just dropped out recently and threw his weight to one of the major candidates. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, Raymond Buckley, dropped out this past Saturday. He threw his support to Keith Ellison. um, And you've got to assume that a lot of his supporters 
also switched their allegiances to Ellison. Um, what that matters going forward is really just that there's one fewer candidate. So the balloting process should be a little bit easier. But I don't think anyone expects that this process is going to take fewer than two or three ballots. Um, a reminder that there are 447 voting members of the DNC. So for a victor to win, they have to secure the majority of those votes. That could take a while. And also this, I mean, in terms of, you know, we, we make a big deal. We, you know, at CQ Roll Call, we cover Congress. That's our, you know, sort of our bread and butter. But really, congressional endorsements don't mean as much as, say, a, a Ray Buckley's endorsement. What, correct? Correct. Most members of Congress are not voting members of the DNC. And it is really the state party chairs and the party apparatus that has most of these seats on the DNC. A congressional endorsement might make the difference in terms of um, influence, you know, swaying people in your state. You saw a lot of members from a specific state in which you have a DNC candidate running endorse that person simply because they're from the same state. But in terms of actual voting clout, they have no power. Nathan, regarding New Hampshire, I mean, Buckley, it, it was interesting to me that he dropped out because, I mean, he, I mean, let's talk about what happened in New Hampshire. I mean, that was sort of an outlier for Democrats, correct? What happened in the election last year? Right. I mean, New Hampshire was a, a rare, a bright spot for Democrats. Uh, they were able to, uh, Governor Maggie Hassan defeated Republican Senator Kelly Ayotte in one of the most expensive competitive Senate race in the country, one of only two uh, Senate seats that Democrats picked up in, in 2016. And so you, know, you would think that someone like Buckley could leverage that into into more support. But I think this fight is really it's, – it's about winning elections, but it is this bigger ideological battle I think that we're seeing. And, and I don't I, – you know, I assume that if Buckley had a road to victory, he, he would have stayed in. Simone, you're. I mean, we we again we we like to look at all the congressional angles on this. Um, you know, Jamie Harrison has a connection to Congress through uh, through a, a member of leadership. Let's talk a little bit about him. He's he's been the sort of almost the sort of forgotten figure a little <laughs> bit. Uh, but let, let's talk about him. Yes, yeah, so you haven't heard too much about him. The appeal, of course, is that he represents a southern state. He could try to bring back some of the Democratic parties. Uh, long forgone strength in some of these rural areas, but also but also southern areas where the party really has no representation and needs to rebuild if they're going to try to win more seats in Congress. And it, and it's also it's it's several different advantages that he you know or several different areas of the Democratic Party that they're you know th that they could conceivably reach out to. So Harrison has connections to Jim Clyburn, right. who's the third ranking House Democrat. Uh, he's, you know, he represents or he would be from South Carolina, you know, a, a southern state, which is not as ruby red uh, necessarily as, as, as you know, people may think. Uh, and and but he he really is, you know, hasn't been a part of much of the of, of these discussions. This really I mean, without handicapping it too much, you know, Budabeg and the, the the guy from South Bend and he's sort of this up and comer from mayor of South Bend and Harrison are almost like a second tier. So like in these this contest between Keith Ellison, the Minnesota congressman, and um, uh, Tom Perez, the former labor secretary, who seems to does any either one of them seem to have some sort of advantage? 
You know, at this point, the, the scenario that I've heard from Democrats is that if the situation gets too heated between Ellison and Perez, and if Democrats already wary of this so-called proxy war, a seemingly never-ending Democratic primary process from 2016, if that just becomes too toxic on Saturday, there could be an opportunity for one of these up-and-comers, as you said, um, to really rise. And I think a lot of it, from what I've heard, could come down to the actual day, the actual messaging and speeches that people give on Saturday, especially if there are as many undeclared members as we think there might be at this point. So this could be an instance of the Alaska (laughs) state party chairman actually having some sway over the contest? Could be. Could be. (laughs) Um, I I referenced a little bit earlier, Nathan, this this idea that, you know, that a 50-state strategy, you know, could be – it's something that every once in a while is bandied about. Howard Dean – who was the chairman, you know, in the in the sort of the last wilderness years after John Kerry had lost the 2004 election to George W. Bush. Howard Dean, you know, made it a point of saying, I'm going to reach out to people in Wyoming. I'm going to reach out to people in Mississippi and in Alaska and so forth. Uh, is that viable right now from what you're seeing? I mean, that Democrats could lay the groundwork for a 50 state strategy? I, I think every election or every cycle, particularly with the party that's out of power, we go through this fight over, do you need the base or do you need the middle? And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> you, you need both. Uh-huh. And I think right now Democrats are at the point in the cycle where they need as as broad of a playing field as possible, particularly in the House. I mean, the Senate, the playing field is it's kind of it is what you're given with the class of seats that are up. But in the House, they need to cast their wet their net wide in order to take advantage of a potential opportunity. Uh, you know, if the if the if the midterm elections turn out to be a referendum on an unpopular President Trump, then what do, what uh, places that don't look like opportunities now might develop, and the Democrats need candidates in in place for those. But specifically to that point when Howard Dean had his strategy, and, and Rahm Emanuel was head of the D Triple C, and Democrats gained had big gains in two thousand six. It wasn't just a fifty state strategy; it was also that George W. Bush was incredibly unpopular, and and so those two things together uh, were good for Democrats, and I think that's what they want to try to do going into twenty eighteen. Simone, you're writing a story, uh, and one of the things you point out was that the House Democrats, I mean, which is where we're seeing a lot of the sort of these town halls happening. House Democrats, you know, they gain six seats, which is not bad if you lose the, the White House. Uh, but where are some of these opportunities that say, you know, these, these sort of marginal places that you think might it might make a difference to have a very strong, you know, organizational, you know, head you know, or chieftain, you know, at the, at the head of the DNC? Right. So that really comes down to what Nathan was talking about in terms of you want to have strong candidates in places that might emerge as opportunities, depending on how popular Trump is. Um, If 2016 was not an anomaly, Democrats, um, they're plotting their strategy as if it were not. They're trying to target suburban areas with more affluent, well-educated voters who will be turned off by the president. At the same time, they don't want to abandon some of those middle America places that have traditionally been Democratic beds of support, more working class areas. Um, Rick Nolan's district in Minnesota, for example, they know they can't abandon those areas, but they need to play to both if they're going to pick up the number of seats they need. And let's say the DNC needs to raise a ton of cash. <laughs> That's what the DNC has to do. The DCCC, the DSCC are going to be the ones recruiting the candidates, being working hand in hand with the campaigns. The DNC's role, uh, you know, building the state parties, but just having a ton of cash that can then be sent to the other committees in order to buoy races at the end. I mean, the, it, this isn't this is about fundraising. I think in large part, even though we're talking about ideology. 
All right. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, Nathan Gonzalez. Thank you very much, Simone Pathay. Uh, we'll be following this uh, as we go towards the election on Saturday. I'm Jason Dick. Uh, it's been my pleasure to host you here on the Big Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. Thanks again.